Book One, Part Four of the Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Annals by Publius Cornelius Tacitus, Volume One. Translated by Alfred John Church and William Jackson Brodrib. Book One. A.D. 14 and 15, Part 4. And so the Roman army, now on the spot, six years after the disaster, in grief and anger, began to bury the bones of the three legions, not a soldier knowing whether he was interring the relics of a relative or a stranger, but looking on all as kinsfolk and of their own blood, while their wrath rose higher than ever against the foe. In raising the barrow, Caesar laid the first sod, rendering thus a most welcome honor to the dead, and sharing also in the sorrow of those present. This Tiberius did not approve, either interpreting unfavorably every act of Germanicus, or because he thought that the spectacle of the slain and unburied made the army slow to fight and more afraid of the enemy, and that a general invested with the augurate and its very ancient ceremonies ought not to have polluted himself with funeral rites. Germanicus, however, pursued Arminius as he fell back into trackless wilds, and as soon as he had the opportunity, ordered his cavalry to sally forth and scour the plains occupied by the enemy. Arminius, having bidden his men to concentrate themselves and keep close to the woods, suddenly wheeled round, and soon gave those whom he had concealed in the forest passes the signal to rush to the attack. Thereupon our cavalry was thrown into disorder by this new force, and some cohorts in reserve were sent, which, broken by the shock of flying troops, increased the panic. They were being pushed into a swamp, well known to the victorious assailants, perilous to men unacquainted with it, when Caesar led forth his legions in battle array. This struck terror into the enemy, and gave confidence to our men, and they separated without advantage to either. Soon afterwards, Germanicus led back his army to the Amicia, taking his legions by the fleet as he had brought them up. Part of the cavalry was ordered to make for the Rhine along the sea-coast. Caecina, who commanded a division of his own, was advised, though he was returning by a route which he knew, to pass long bridges with all possible speed. This was a narrow road amid vast swamps, which had formerly been constructed by Lucius Domitius. On each side were quagmires of thick, clinging mud, or perilous with streams. Around were woods of a gradual slope, which Arminius now completely occupied, as soon as, by a short route and quick march, he had outstripped troops heavily laden with baggage and arms. As Caecina was in doubt how he could possibly replace bridges which were ruinous with age, and at the same time hold back the enemy, he resolved to encamp on the spot, that some might begin the repair and others the attack. The barbarians attempted to break through the outposts, and throw themselves on the engineering parties, which they harassed, pacing round them and continually charging them. There was a confused din from the men at work and the combatants. Everything alike was unfavorable to the Romans. The place, with its deep swamps, insecure to the foot and slippery as one advanced, limbs burdened with coats of mail, and the impossibility of aiming their javelins amid the water. 
The Cherusci, on the other hand, were familiar with fighting and fens. They had huge frames, and lances long enough to inflict wounds even at a distance. Night at last released the legions, which were now wavering from a disastrous engagement. The Germans, whom success rendered unwearied, without even then taking any rest, turned all the streams which rose from the slopes of the surrounding hills into the lands beneath. The ground being thus flooded, and the completed portion of our works submerged, the soldiers' labor was doubled. This was Caecina's fortieth campaign as a subordinate or a commander, and, with such experience of success and peril, he was perfectly fearless. As he thought over future possibilities, he could devise no plan but to keep the enemy within the woods, till the wounded and the more encumbered troops were in advance. For between the hills and the swamps there stretched a plain which would admit of an extended line. The legions had their assigned places, the fifth on the right wing, the twenty-first on the left, the men of the first to lead the van, and the twentieth to repel pursuers. It was a restless night for different reasons. The barbarians in their festivity, filling the valleys under the hills and the echoing glens with merry song or savage shouts, while in the Roman camp were flickering fires, broken exclamations, and the men lay scattered along the entrenchments, or wandering from tent to tent, wakeful rather than watchful. A ghastly dream appalled the general. He seemed to see Quintilius Varus, covered with blood, rising out of the swamps, and to hear him, as it were, calling to him. But he did not, as he imagined, obey the call. He even repelled his hand, as he stretched it over to him. At daybreak the legions, posted on the wings from panic or perversity, deserted their position, and hastily occupied a plain beyond the morass. Yet Arminius, though free to attack, did not, at the moment, rush out on them. But when the baggage was clogged in the mud and in the fosses, the soldiers around it in disorder, the array of the standards in confusion, everyone in selfish haste and all ears deaf to the word of command, he ordered the Germans to charge, exclaiming again and again, Behold, a Varus, and legions once more entangled in Varus's fate. As he spoke, he cut through the columns with some picked men, inflicting wounds chiefly on the horses. Staggering in their blood on the slippery marsh, they took off their riders, driving hither and thither all in their way, and trampling on the fallen. The struggle was hottest round the eagles, which could neither be carried in the face of the storm of missiles, nor planted in the miry soil. Caecina, while he was keeping up the battle, fell from his horse, which was pierced under him, and was being hemmed in, when the first legion threw itself in the way. The greed of the foe helped him, for they left the slaughter to secure the spoil, and the legions, towards evening, struggled on to an open and firm ground. Nor did this end their miseries. Entrenchments had to be thrown up, materials sought for earthworks, while the army had lost to a great extent their implements for digging earth and cutting turf. There were no tents for the rank and file, no comforts for the wounded. As they shared their food, soiled by mire or blood, they bewailed the darkness with its awful omen, and the one day which yet remained to so many thousand men. It chanced that a horse, which had broken its halter and wandered wildly in fright at the uproar, overthrew some men against whom it dashed. Thence arose such a panic, from the belief that the Germans had burst into the camp, that all rushed to the gates. Of these, the Decuman Gate, 
was the point chiefly sought, as it was furthest from the enemy, and safer for flight. Kaikina, having ascertained that the alarm was groundless, yet being unable to stop or stay the soldiers by authority, or entreaties, or even by force, threw himself to the ground in the gateway, and at last, by an appeal to their pity, as they would have had to pass over the body of their commander, closed the way. At the same moment the tribunes and the centurions convinced them that it was a false alarm. Having then assembled them at his headquarters, and ordered them to hear his words in silence, he reminded them of the urgency of the crisis. Their safety, he said, lay in their arms, which they must, however, use with discretion. They must remain within the entrenchments, till the enemy approached closer, in the hope of storming them. Then there must be a general sortie. By that sortie the Rhine must be reached, whereas if they fled, more forest, deeper swamps, and a savage foe awaited them. But if they were victorious, glory and renown would be theirs. He dwelt on all that was dear to them at home, all that testified to their honor in the camp, without any allusion to disaster. Next he handed over the horses, beginning with his own, of the officers and tribunes, to the bravest fighters in the army, quite impartially, that these first and then the infantry might charge the enemy. There was as much restlessness in the German host with its hopes, its eager longings, and the conflicting opinions of its chiefs. Arminius advised that they should allow the Romans to quit their position, and when they had quitted it, again surprised them in swampy and intricate ground. In Guriomeris, with fiercer counsels, heartily welcomed to barbarians, was for beleaguering the entrenchments in armed array, as to storm them would, he said, be easy, and there would be more prisoners, and the booty unspoilt. So at daybreak they trampled in the fosses, flung hurdles into them, seized the upper part of the breastwork, where the troops were thinly distributed, and seemingly paralyzed by fear. When they were fairly within the fortifications, the signal was given to the cohorts, the horns and trumpets sounded. Instantly, with a shout and a sudden rush, our men threw themselves on the German rear, with taunts, that here were no woods or swamps, but that they were on equal ground, with equal chances. The sound of trumpets, the gleam of arms, which are so unexpected, burst with all the greater effect on the enemy, thinking only, as they were, of the easy destruction of a few half-armed men, and they were struck down, as unprepared for a reverse as they had been elated by success. Arminius and Inguiomerus fled from the battle, the first unhurt, the other severely wounded. Their followers were slaughtered, as long as our fury and the light of day lasted. It was not till night that the legions returned, and though more wounds and the same want of provisions distressed them, yet they found strength, healing, sustenance, everything, indeed, in their victory. Meanwhile, a rumor had spread that our army was cut off, and that a furious German host was marching on Gaul, and had not Agrippina prevented the bridge over the Rhine from being destroyed, some in their cowardice would have dared that base act. A woman of heroic spirit, she assumed during those days the duties of a general, and distributed clothes or medicine among the soldiers, as they were destitute or wounded. According to Gaius Plinius, the historian of the German wars, she stood at the extremity of the bridge, and bestowed praise and thanks on the returning legions. This made a deep impression on the mind of Tiberius. Such zeal, he thought, 
could not be guiltless. It was not against a foreign foe that she was thus courting the soldiers. Generals had nothing left them when a woman went among the companies, attended the standards, ventured on bribery, as though it showed but slight ambition to parade her son in a common soldier's uniform and wish him to be called Caesar Caligula. Agrippina had now more power with the armies than officers, than generals. A woman had quelled a mutiny, which the sovereign's name could not check. All this was inflamed and aggravated by Sejanus, who, with his thorough comprehension of the character of Tiberius, sowed for a distant future hatreds, which the emperor might treasure up, and might exhibit when fully matured. Of the legions which he conveyed by ship, Germanicus gave the second and fourteenth to Publius Vitellius, to be marched by land, so that the fleet might sail more easily over a sea full of shoals, or take the ground more lightly at the ebb tide. Vitellius at first pursued his route without interruption, having a dry shore, or the waves coming in gently. After a while, through the force of the north wind and the equinoctial season, when the sea swells to its highest, his army was driven and tossed hither and thither. The country, too, was flooded. Sea, shore, fields presented one aspect. Nor could the treacherous quicksands be distinguished from solid ground or shallows from deep water. Men were swept away by the waves or sucked under by eddies. Beasts of burden, baggage, lifeless bodies floated about and blocked their way. The companies were mingled in confusion, now with the breast, now with the head only above water sometimes losing their footing, and parted from their comrades, or drowned. The voice of mutual encouragement availed not against the adverse forces of the waves. There was nothing to distinguish the brave from the coward, the prudent from the careless, forethought from chance. The same strong power swept everything before it. At last Vitellius struggled out to higher ground, and led his men up to it. There they passed the night, without necessary food, without fire, many of them with bare or bruised limbs, in a plight as pitiable as that of men besieged by an army. For such, at least, have the opportunity of a glorious death, while here was destruction without honor. Daylight restored land to their sight, and they pushed their way to the river Bisorgius, where Caesar had arrived with the fleet. The legions then embarked, while a rumor was flying about that they were drowned nor was there a belief in their safety till they saw Caesar and the army returned. By this time, Stertinius, who had been dispatched to receive the surrender of Segimerus, brother of Segestes, had conducted the chief, together with his son, to the canton of the Ubii. Both were pardoned, Segimerus readily, the son with some hesitation, because it was said that he had insulted the corpse of Quintilius Varus. Meanwhile, Gaul, Spain, and Italy vied in repairing the losses of the army, offering whatever they had at hand, arms, horses, gold. Germanicus, having praised their zeal, took only for the war their arms and horses, and relieved the soldiers out of his own purse. And that he might also soften the remembrance of the disaster by kindness, he went round to the wounded, applauded the feats of the soldier after soldier, examined their wounds, raised the hopes of one, the ambition of another, and the spirits of all by his encouragement and interest, thus strengthened their ardor for himself and for battle. That year, triumphal honors were decreed to Aulus Caecina, 
Lucius Apronius, and Gaius Silius, for their achievements under Germanicus. The title of Father of his Country, which the people had so often thrust on him, Tiberius refused, nor would he allow obedience to be sworn to his enactments, though the Senate voted it, for he said repeatedly that all human beings were uncertain, and the more he had obtained, the more precarious was his position. But he did not thereby create a belief in his patriotism, for he had revived the law of treason, the name of which indeed was known in ancient times, though other matters came under its jurisdiction, such as the betrayal of an army, or seditious stirring up of the people, or, in short, any corrupt act by which a man had impaired the majesty of the people of Rome. Deeds only were liable to accusation. Words went unpunished. It was Augustus who first, under color of this law, applied legal inquiry to libelous writings provoked, as he had been, by the licentious freedom with which Cassius Severus had defamed men and women of distinction in his insulting satires. Soon afterwards, Tiberius, when consulted by Pompeius Macer, the praetor, as to whether prosecutions for treason should be revived, replied that the laws must be enforced. He too had been exasperated by the publication of verses of uncertain authorship, pointed at his cruelty, his arrogance, and his dissensions with his mother. It will not be uninteresting if I relate in the cases of Philanius and Rubirius, Roman knights of moderate fortune, the first experiments at such accusations in order to explain the origin of a most terrible scourge, how by Tiberius's cunning it crept in among us, how subsequently it was checked, finally how it burst into flame and consumed everything. Against Philanius, it was alleged by his accuser that he had admitted among the votaries of Augustus, who in every great house were associated into a kind of brotherhood, one Cassius, a buffoon of infamous life, and that he had also, in selling his gardens, included in the sale a statue of Augustus. Against Rubirius, the charge was that he had violated by perjury the divinity of Augustus. When this was known to Tiberius, he wrote to the consuls that his father had not had a place in heaven decreed to him that the honor might be turned to the destruction of the citizens. Cassius, the actor, with men of the same profession, used to take part in the games which had been consecrated by his mother to the memory of Augustus. Nor was it contrary to the religion of the state for the emperor's image, like those of other deities, to be added to the sale of gardens and houses. As to the oath, the thing ought to be considered as if the man had deceived Jupiter. Wrong done to the gods were the gods' concerns. Not long afterwards, Granius Marcellus, proconsul of Bithynia, was accused of treason by his quaestor, Caepio Crispinus, and the charge was supported by Romanus Hispo. Crispinus then entered on a line of life, afterwards rendered notorious by the miseries of the age and men's shamelessness. Needy, obscure, and restless, he wormed himself by stealthy informations into the confidence of a vindictive prince and soon imperiled all the most distinguished citizens, and having thus gained influence with one, hatred from all besides, he left an example, in following which, beggars became wealthy, the insignificant formidable, and brought ruin first on others, finally on themselves. He alleged against Marcellus that he had made some disrespectful remarks about Tiberius, 
a charge not to be evaded, insomuch as the accuser selected the worst features of the emperor's character and grounded his case on them. The things were true, and so were believed to have been said. Hispo added that Marcellus had placed his own statue above those of the Caesars, and had set a bust of Tiberius on another statue from which he had struck off the head of Augustus. At this the emperor's wrath blazed forth, and breaking through his habitual silence, he exclaimed that in such a case he would himself too give his vote openly on oath, and that the rest might be under the same obligation. There lingered, even then, a few signs of expiring freedom. And so, Nius Piso asked, In what order will you vote, Caesar? If first, I shall know what to follow. If last, I fear that I may differ from you unwillingly. Tiberius was deeply moved, and repenting of the outburst, all the more because of its thoughtlessness, he quietly allowed the accused to be acquitted of the charges of treason. As for the question of extortion, it was referred to a special commission. Not satisfied with judicial proceedings in the Senate, the emperor would sit at one end of the praetor's tribunal, but so as not to displace him from the official seat. Many decisions were given in his presence, in opposition to improper influence and the solicitations of great men. This, though it promoted justice, ruined freedom. Pius Aurelius, for example, a senator, complained that the foundations of his house had been weakened by the pressure of a public road and aqueduct, and he appealed to the Senate for assistance. He was opposed by the praetors of the treasury, but the emperor helped him and paid him the value of his house, for he liked to spend money on a good purpose, a virtue which he long retained when he had cast off all others. To Propertius Keller, an ex-praetor, who sought because of his indigence to be excused from his rank as a senator, he gave a million sesterces, having ascertained that he had inherited poverty. He bade others, who attempted the same, prove their case to the Senate. As for the love of strictness, he was harsh, even when he acted on right grounds. Consequently, everyone else preferred silence and poverty to confession and relief. In the same year that Tiber, swollen by continuous rains, flooded the levels, portions of the city. Its subsidence was followed by a destruction of buildings and of life. Thereupon, Asinius Gallus proposed to consult the Sibylline books. Tiberius refused, veiling in obscurity the divine as well as the human. However, the devising of means to confine the river was entrusted to Atius Capito and Lucius Aruntius. Achaia and Macedonia, on complaining of their burdens, were, it was decided, to be relieved for a time from proconsular government, and to be transferred to the emperor. Drusus provided over a show of gladiators, which he gave in his own name, and in that of his brother Germanicus, for he gloated intensely over bloodshed, however cheap its victims. This was alarming to the populace, and his father had, it was said, rebuked him. Why Tiberius kept away from the spectacle was variously explained. According to some, it was his loathing of a crowd. According to others, his gloomy temper, and a fear of contrast with the gracious presence of Augustus. I cannot believe that he deliberately gave his son the opportunity of displaying his ferocity and provoking the people's disgust, though even this was said. Meanwhile, the unruly tone of the theatre, which first showed itself in the preceding year, broke out with worst violence, and some soldiers and a centurion, 
besides others of the populace, were killed, and the tribune of the praetorian cohort was wounded, while they were trying to stop insults to the magistrates and the strife of the mob. This disturbance was the subject of a debate in the Senate, and opinions were expressed in favor of the praetors, having authority to scourge actors. Hatarius Agrippa, tribune of the people, interposed his veto, and was sharply censured in a speech from Alcinius Gallus, without a word from Tiberius, who liked to allow the Senate such shows of freedom. Still, the interposition was successful, because Augustus had once pronounced that actors were exempt from the scourge, and it was not lawful for Tiberius to infringe his decisions. Many enactments were passed to fix the amount of their pay and to check the disorderly behavior of their partisans. Of these, the chief were that no senator should enter the house of a pantomime player, that Roman knights should not crowd round them in the public streets, and that they should exhibit themselves only in the theater, and that praetors should be empowered to punish with banishment any riotous conduct in the spectators. A request from the Spaniards that they might erect a temple to Augustus in the colony of Taraco was granted, and a precedent thus given for all the provinces. When the people of Rome asked for a remission of the one percent tax on all saleable commodities, Tiberius declared by edict that the military exchequer depended on that branch of revenue, and, further, that the state was unequal to the burden, unless the twentieth year of service was to be that of a veteran's discharge. Thus, the ill-advised results of the late mutiny, by which the limit of sixteen campaigns had been extorted, were cancelled for the future. A question was then raised in the Senate by Aruntius and Aetaeus, whether, in order to restrain the inundations of the Tiber, the rivers and lakes which swell its waters should be diverted from their courses. A hearing was given to embassies from the municipal towns and colonies, and the people of Florentia begged that the Clanis might not be turned out of its channel and made to flow into the Arnus, as that would bring ruin on themselves. Similar arguments were used by the inhabitants of Interamna. The most fruitful plains of Italy, they said, would be destroyed if the river Nar, for this was the plan proposed, were to be divided into several streams and overflow the country. Nor did the people of Reate remain silent. They remonstrated against the closing up of the Veline Lake, which empties itself into the Nar, as it would burst in a flood on the entire neighborhood. Nature had admirably provided for human interests in having assigned to the rivers their mouths, their channels, and their limits, as well as their sources. Regard, too, must be paid to the different religions of the Allies, who had dedicated sacred rites, groves, and altars to the rivers of their country. Tiber himself would be altogether unwilling to be deprived of his neighboring streams and to flow with less glory. Either the entreaties of the colonies, or the difficulty of the work, or superstitious motives prevailed, and they yielded to Piso's opinion, who declared himself against any change. Popius Sabinus was continued in his government of the province of Moesia, with the addition of Achaia and Macedonia. It was part of Tiberius's character to prolong indefinitely military commands, and to keep many men to the end of their life, with the same armies and in the same administrations. Various motives had been assigned for this. Some say that, out of aversion to any fresh anxiety, he retained what he had once approved as a permanent arrangement. 
others that he grudged to see many enjoying promotion. Some again think that though he had an acute intellect, his judgment was irresolute, for he did not seek our eminent merit, yet he detested vice. From the best men he apprehended danger to himself, from the worst disgrace to the state. He went so far, at last in this irresolution, that he appointed to the provinces men whom he did not mean to allow to leave Rome. End of Book One, Part Four